My friends, the January 6th committee is doing an excellent job exposing Donald Trump's attempted coup that culminated in the attack on the Capitol. What they've not done is show why so many Americans were willing and continue to be willing to overthrow American democracy. I'm going to devote today's and some future posts to this question. For if we fail to address the causes of Trumpism, the attempted coup will continue. And at some point, I'm afraid, it will succeed. Let me start with some personal history. In the fall of 2015, I visited Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Missouri, or Missouri, depending upon what part you're from, and North Carolina. I was doing research on the changing nature of work in America. During my visits, I spoke with many of the same people I had met 20 years before when I was Secretary of Labor, as well as with some of their grown children. I asked them about their jobs, their views about the economy, and their thoughts on a variety of public issues. What I was really seeking was their sense of the system as a whole and how they were faring in it. What I heard surprised me. 20 years before, many had expressed frustration that they weren't doing better. Now they were angry. They were angry at their employers, the government, and Wall Street. They were angry that they hadn't been able to save for retirement. Angry that their children weren't doing any better than they did at their children's age. They were angry at those at the top who they felt had rigged the system for their own benefit. Several of them had lost jobs, savings, or homes in the Great Recession following the financial crisis. By the time I spoke with them, most were back in jobs, but the jobs paid no more than they had two decades before in terms of purchasing power. I heard the term rigged system so often that I began asking people what they meant by it. They spoke about the bailout of Wall Street, political payoffs, insider deals, CEO pay, and they used the term crony capitalism. These complaints came from people who identified themselves as Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. A few of them had joined the Tea Party. Some others had briefly been involved in the Occupy movement, yet most of them didn't consider themselves particularly political. They were white, black, and Latinx, from union households and non-union. The only characteristic they had in common, apart from the states and regions where I found them, was their positions on the income ladder. All were middle class and below, and all felt they no longer had a fair chance to make it. With the 2016 political primaries looming, I asked them which candidates they found most attractive. At the time, the leaders of both parties favored Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush to be the Democratic and Republican candidates, respectively. Yet no one I spoke with mentioned either Clinton or Bush. Instead, they talked about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. When I asked them why, they said Sanders or Trump would shake things up or make the system work again or stop the corruption or end the rigging. The following year, 
Sanders, then a 74-year-old Jew from Vermont who described himself as a democratic socialist, and who wasn't even a Democrat until the 2016 presidential primary, he came within a whisker of beating Hillary Clinton in the Iowa caucus. He routed her in the New Hampshire primary, garnered over 47% of the caucus goers in Nevada, and ended up with 46% of the pledged delegates from Democratic primaries and caucuses overall. Had the Democratic National Committee not tipped the scales against him, I'm convinced Sanders would have been the Democratic candidate in 2016. Trump, a 69-year-old egomaniacal billionaire reality TV star who had never held elective office or had anything to do with the Republican Party and who lied compulsively about almost everything, he won the Republican primaries and then went on to beat Clinton, one of the most experienced and well-connected politicians in modern America. Now, granted, he didn't win the popular vote and he did have some help from the Kremlin. Something very big had happened, and it wasn't due to Sanders' magnetism or to Trump's likability. It was a rebellion against the establishment. Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush had all the advantages. Deep bases of funders, well-established networks of political insiders, experienced political advisors, all the name recognition you could want. But neither of them could credibly convince voters they were not part of the system and therefore part of the problem. Now, the economy was doing reasonably well in terms of the standard economic indicators of employment and growth, but those standard economic indicators don't reflect the economic insecurity most Americans felt then and continue to feel, nor the seeming arbitrariness and unfairness they continue to experience. The indicators don't show the linkages many Americans still see between wealth and power, crony capitalism, stagnant real wages, soaring CEO pay, their losses of status as middle-class or lower-middle-class people, and a billionaire class that has turned democracy into an oligarchy. The standard economic measures don't show what most Americans have caught on to, how wealth has translated into political power to rig the system with bank bailouts, corporate subsidies, special tax loopholes, shrunken unions, and increasing monopoly power, all of which have pushed down wages and pulled up profits. Much of the political establishment still denies what has occurred. They, they prefer to attribute Trump's rise solely to racism. Racism did play a part. But to understand why racism and its first cousin, xenophobia, had such a strong impact in 2016, especially on the voting of whites without college degrees, it's important to see what drove the racism. After all, racism in America dates back long before the founding of the Republic, and even modern American politicians have had few compunctions about using racism to boost their standing. Richard Nixon's Law and Order campaign on behalf of the silent majority 
was an appeal to racism, as was Ronald Reagan's condemnation of welfare queens and George H. W. Bush's use of Willie Horton against Michael Dukakis. Racism was also behind Bill Clinton's promise to end welfare as we know it and to crack down on crime. All were illustrations of what Professor Ian Heaney Lopez has called dog whistle politics, the use of racially coded language to exploit the prejudices of white Americans. No, what gave Trump's racism, as well as, as his hateful xenophobia and his misogyny and jingoism, what gave all of them particular virulence was Trump's capacity to channel the intensifying anger of the white working class into it. It was hardly the first time in history that a demagogue used scapegoats to deflect public attention from the real causes of their distress. And it won't be the last. Much more of, of this to come. Uh, but, frankly, it's getting late and I am dead tired. Good night.